Fundraising everywhere. 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 Fundraising Everywhere podcast is kindly sponsored by our friends at Just Given. Now, one of the things that we love most about Just Given is that they believe that everyone deserves to be able to use the very best fundraising tech to raise more money. And that includes all charities, small and big, and anyone in the world that wants to make a difference for a cause they care about. And although they've been around for years, they're still as passionate as ever about creating cool new tech and are always releasing new features. Plus, the team's lush to work with and they really care about charities. Thank you, Nikki, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today on this podcast. Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, where we dive deeper into select topics and we give you a free glimpse of one of our amazing webinars or conferences. My name's Simon Scriver. I'm one of the co-founders of Fundraising Everywhere, and today we will be listening to Safina Ahmad, the director of the John Elliman Foundation. And Safina is joined by Rini Jones, a senior policy and advocacy advisor, and the one and only Paul Amadi from the British Red Cross, who, by the way, is speaking at the Fundraising Everywhere Charity Leadership Festival on Fundraising Everywhere. So do check that out. Um, Today, they're going to be chatting about game-changing leadership, and this is a session that first appeared at the BAME Online Conference. Now, if you don't know the BAME Online Conference, this is the place to be to talk about radically different ways of doing work in our charity sector. We continue to host that conference on our platform, and we're very grateful to work with Martha and her team. Ah, we love Martha. Anyway, you should definitely be at that. It's virtual and it's a pay-what-you-can model, so there's no excuse not to book your tickets today. Just have a search for BAME online. Right, that's enough for me. Over to our panel. Over to you, Safina. Thanks very much. Okay, hello, everyone, and thank you for choosing to be a boss and join our panel on game-changing leadership. So today, we're going to share with you what leadership at a governance and an operational level means to us, the biggest myths about leadership, that we've come across along the way and how we manage to strive for change and progress in our roles. We want to share with you what it's taken for each of us to stay true to ourselves and our own ideals and values as leaders and whether we've had to make compromises or play the game, as it were, along the way. We're also going to reflect on our own experiences of being a leader with labels, often called upon to be the representative for that label within our work. Ultimately, this is a session that looks at how we can all support each other to be the leaders that we are. So I'm going to introduce my panel now. They're incredible. So joining me today, I've got Rini Jones and Paul Amadi. So Rini is the Policy and Advocacy Officer at Hospice UK. Rini joined that through the Charity Works Graduate Trainee Scheme. Rini has also been a part of the Beyond Suffrage Trustee Training Programme, and that's resulted in her becoming a trustee of BiPride UK and she's an organiser at Charity So White. Paul is the Chief Supporter Officer at British Red Cross, and he's held numerous senior leadership roles in fundraising across the sector. And he's a member of the Institute of Fundraising's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And I'm Safina. I'm the Director of the John Elliman Foundation, a grant maker in the arts, social action and environment. This is my first Chief Executive role, and I'm currently a trustee for three different charities. So, I've asked Rini and Paul to speak for about five minutes each and share their experiences of leadership. 
Before I invite them to do this, I wanted to very briefly share some of my own reflections and, and experiences. So firstly, I don't wanna oversimplify something as complex as leadership, um, but I did wanna say for us to operate with confidence, ambition and heart in spaces where we are othered or minoritized is quite frankly an example of us being leaders, leaders with grit. Throughout my career, I've seen time and again that leadership, especially those entitled leadership roles, so they've got director or chief executive in their title, those roles and titles bring with them power, privilege and responsibility. Now, we'll all know leaders that wield this power, privilege and responsibility with care and attention, and they're really able to succeed as leaders. They're the leaders that are generous and they're keen to build leadership in others. However, we'll also know many leaders that don't do this. These are the leaders that harm and hinder others. They might hoard their power, they might guard their privilege fiercely, and in so doing, they fail to deliver on their responsibilities. These leaders perhaps forget that we don't live in a meritocracy. Instead, we live in a world where structural and systemic barriers exist that impact some of us more than others, where for some of us, we are constantly having to strive in order to thrive. Throughout my career, I've always been ambitious about positive change I've wanted to make in the world for the causes I support and champion. I've also been really lucky to have wanted to progress in my career and I've actively pursued development and promotion opportunities. But a titled leadership role wasn't necessarily on my list of goals. Simply put, I wasn't sure that those roles were actually meant for people like me. However, alongside my own ambition, I've also been really fortunate to have people, peers, other people I've worked for who've really supported and encouraged me and given me the confidence to pursue those leadership roles. I also know that I do have a range of privileges that mean whether I plan to or I didn't plan to, I've been able to code switch my way through workplaces and progress as a result. As a leader, I've had to manage my own fear of failure and imposter syndrome when I've been the only person in the room that looks like me or when people have joked about a job I have, even though I've applied to that job in the same way as everyone else. Um, people joking that perhaps I've got that job, not so much down to my talent or expertise, but because I tick multiple diversity boxes for that organization. It took me years into my career before I really stepped into leadership roles to confidently speak about issues within the sector relating to equity and, and inclusion. Honestly, before I really started speaking out about those things, I probably felt that those labels were a bit like a deficit, something to be hidden or not talked about too much. Now I really realize that those labels are assets. They bring with them utter br brilliance. So like so many leaders and this panel, we wanna be leaders that are authentic and transparent. I wanna be open about who I am and my experiences and I'm wholly committed to supporting people that are minoritized to be leaders too. It is for these reasons and many more that I'm so happy to be chairing today's panel. And now I'm going to hand over to Rini. Thank you. Thank you so much, Safina. Um, and a lot of what you said really resonated with me as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm really happy to be here. And I think it's worth starting off that I was really surprised to be asked to join this panel. Um, pleasantly surprised, um, but surprised nonetheless. And I think that exemplifies one of the big tensions um, I experience when it comes to leadership in that I don't look like a leader. I feel that I don't look like what a traditional leader looks like. Um, 
I have an image in my head. I think a lot of us do. That's been ingrained in me from a very young age of what a leader looks like. And that does not look like me. And that goes beyond, um, you know, being an old white man, trademark, um, which is a phrase we always <laughs> kind of bandy around. Um, I'm a young woman. I'm in my mid-20s-ish. And I'm at the beginning of my career. So for me, leaders are tenured, leaders are experienced, leaders have um, master's degrees, leaders have a lot of things under their belt that I don't have yet. Um, and so I, I didn't feel, you know, that this panel really reflected that. Um, that has changed with time um, through my campaigning work with Charity So Why and more recently becoming a trustee. I have begun to see how false that conception is and how ingrained in me that is. Um, it took me by surprise, my reaction to this panel. Um, I thought I had kind of thrown away those kind of sh those shackles. I didn't realize I was still burdened by them. Um, but it just goes to show the work that needs to be done in order to kind of dismantle um, those structures. Working with kind of very young, um, very talented people of colour, I can see, you know, by comparison, just how wanting a lot of the leadership I've seen in my past has been, um, how inert that leadership has been, and actually how how being in a position for a long time doesn't automatically make you a leader. It doesn't mean you're the best person for that job, and it doesn't mean that you're particularly good at it. Um, it means that, you know, you You've, you've experienced a range of privileges, um, your, your life trajectory has taken a certain path and, and you've ended up where you are. It's not the case for everybody, but it's certainly been my experience. Um, and I knew really early on, um, I'm, I'm in my second year in the sector now, um, but I knew really early on that I wanted to be on a trustee board because that to me is where the real power sat. Um, that to me is the final line of accountability when it comes to a charity's actions. And I knew that's something I wanted to feed into because I'd seen such poor behaviour in the past. Um, but it felt really far-fetched that that would be something I'd aspire to this early on. Um, I'm too young, I'm too brown. Um, my favourite statistic is one in 12 trustees are called either John or David. Um, and I'm none of those things. And I just felt, yeah, it was just too, it was too ambitious. It was a bit of a pipe dream. And, and that was confirmed. I applied for a lot of trusteeships quite early on and was rejected, often without interview, often without feedback. And I thought, what is it? Is it, is it lack of expertise? Because I knew I had expertise, but it was expertise that wasn't valued. Um, I thought maybe it was the age, maybe it could be my ethnicity. In fact, I think it was all, all of those things, a combination of all of those things. Um, and that whole process reinforced a lot of fears that I had, which is why Beyond Suffrage was so crucial to me. Um, so Beyond Suffrage is a, a trustee training program that is designed to boost the number of young, specifically young women of colour on boards um, to kind of tackle the age diversity problems that trustee boards have, as well as, as, well as race. Um, and, and over the course of that program, I learned about governance. I learned about the legal obligations of trustees and, and the depth and breadth of their oversight. And with that came opportunities. Um, but something that I really had to check myself on was being selective with those opportunities. Just because suddenly there's an influx of people that want to interview me doesn't mean that each one of those things is right for me. And 
having you know doing my due diligence I saw okay well this board is entirely white it's entirely middle-aged will I feel safe going into that space will I feel able to raise my voice and will I feel able to talk about the things that I think are important which was why when the opportunity with Buy Pride UK came along it felt like a perfect alignment um it's a board of trustees that's quite young the charity itself is quite young um and everyone on that board has lived experience of being marginalized on some lines um whether that's ability whether that's sexuality um or gender representation um it's a position where i have meaningful oversight over inclusion representation diversity and anti-oppression work which is where my expertise lies and they valued my lived experience there um so yeah i i if i if there's one thing i'd want to share in this um in this panel it's be selective you're allowed to be selective as young people of color we're told you know take any opportunity that comes your way because you're lucky to have them that's not true it's simply not true. You're allowed to you're allowed to withhold your expertise for the right fit, and you don't have to put yourself in unsafe environments to progress. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. I think that's such an important message. That's incredible. Thank you. Be discerning. Be selective. Right. I'm going to hand over to Paul now. So, um, how do I follow those uh, last two expositions, um, which have both been really, really powerful, um, and which yeah, there are really some themes there which, you know, which you know, resonate uh, really, really strongly. Um, just to um, say a little bit about me then. So, uh, Paul Amadi, um, fundraising lead uh, at the British Red Cross, uh, which means that um, uh, I'm accountable, I guess, for a, you know, a large team and uh, also ultimately accountable for a significant, you know, multi-million pound budget. So, there's a huge amount of accountability and responsibility that comes um, with my with my brief, um, unlike you, Rini, um, I you know I wish I'd only been in the sector a couple of years. I wish I had that kind of you know because <laughs> um, um, the, the length of time I've been with the sector um, is actually uh, exceeds two decades. Wow, can't believe where that you know where that time has gone. Um, and um, I would say that, that my time in the sector has I don't know. I think there's kind of two or three things I would really want you know for, to, to to share and and you know and convey. Um, I don't know if it necessarily kind of aligns with what's been said before, but it, it, it feels important for me to say it. So 20 plus years in the sector, um, the, the vast majority have been privileged and fortunate enough to occupy a, a, a leadership position um, and led um, large teams, multi-dimensional teams, always been or pretty much always been, you know, consistently the only person of colour in the room um, with all that, you know, that that entails and, and you know, feeling Covered, all of those types of uh, you know expressions definitely um, you know definitely uh, strike a chord with me. But I, I'm, I'm going to put it out there that first and foremost, um, and I know that you wanted us to consider this, Athena. I see myself as a as a, as a leader, uh, as, a, as a as a leader of a team, um, and being a person of colour, incredibly important to me. But I'm a leader um, who happens to be a person of colour, and I think that that's the really you know really first thing that I wanted to say now. You know that that person, you know, being um, of my ethnicity, you know, being a black person, being one of the few, uh, dare I say it, uh, people of colour leaders in the sector, certainly uh, for an organisation of my scale, certainly comes with a huge amount, um, you know, of responsibility. And I know that you want to, um, uh, you know, dwell on that at some point uh, during the time that we speak. Um, but I definitely see myself um, as a leader first. 
um, and who happens, or a leader who happens to be a person of color. Um, but being a person of color certainly brings with it, you know, a huge set of implications, dimensions, responsibilities, accountabilities that I, you know, that I, you know, that I, uh, I have to experience and, and engage with, you know, on a, on a, on a daily basis. Um, it means dealing with stereotypes, particular types of uh, expectations, um, uh, a belief that, you know, that I will, I will conduct myself, um, you know, in a certain way, you know, inferences or implications and things that, you know, such as code switching and what have you. Um, and it's fair to say that, um, that, um, if I think back over those two and a half, you know, two and a, two and a bit plus decades, my experience of being a person of uh, color in the, uh, uh, in the sector has been checkered. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, microaggressions. I have to say that, you know, that I'm conscious of um, aggressions or, or experiences that, that, you know, I, I wouldn't call them microaggressions, actually. I'll call them a lot more overt uh, and explicit. You know, it's, it's so... Um, dispiriting I think and ironic to you know to be uh, to go to an event um, and, and literally to be uh, uh, mistaken for um, a member of staff who was serving the meals basically that that has been you know that's a consistent and, and dare I say it and, and scarily you know recent experiences these are not you know one-offs as I say you know you talked I think it was used to you know you used the expression you know imposter syndrome you know I I um, it's incredibly, uh, well, it, it calls for a high level of resilience, dare I say it, to be in a, you know, in a, in a, in a room uh, and, and, and be the only person of colour and being expected to, you know, to represent um, and speak within that, you know, within that context. Um, but equally, it's fair to say that, you know, that um, I have had numerous and continue to have um, uh, numerous positive experience I feel incredibly validated and grateful to be you know to be part uh, to be part of this sector which I found incredibly rewarding so for me um, I would say that as I say I see myself as a, as a, as a leader first who happens to be a person of color uh, that my experiences have not been as uniformly warm and as engaging as they ought to have been and I wish them to have been but having said that um, I you know I would really want to focus on the positive um, and, and, and recognize a kind of difference uh, that, that, that people as myself, um, you know, can make. And I also would want to say that one of the things that defined me in terms of my, you know, my leadership journey, um, uh, and I do want to dwell, and hopefully we'll come back to this, is the importance um, of being authentic. And it was a word that you used as well uh, um, in your, you know, in your uh, intro, uh, Safina. But, you know, but for me, uh, being authentic, being value, you know, being value-led, I think are the things that, uh, that would define my approach towards leadership. Incredible. I just love the kind of honesty that you've offered all of us here today. And I think what you've done so wonderfully is show that there is a huge positive to come from being a game-changing leader. And we can be leaders without labels, but our labels can still be incredibly supportive to who we are as leaders. Um, so I've got a few questions and thank you so much. I'm mulling over a thousand questions, but I'm gonna try and limit myself a little here. So you've talked about things like power and leadership and accountability and responsibility. And, you know, there's much in this kind of 
terminology of leadership that is attached to it. Um, I guess my first question to both of you is, you've all both made it clear that you haven't played the game necessarily. You've been discerning, you've been selective, you've you know, taken on that responsibility, you've shown that you can do that. But how do you stay authentic? How do you kind of avoid falling into the trap of maybe playing the game or losing part of yourself in order to progress? Um, does anyone want to answer that first? I'm happy, really happy for you to kick off, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, I, it's quite, you know, I, I, I've mulled over that question a bit um, and it's quite a difficult one to quantify or to put into words. I think it, it leads back to something that, that Paul touched on, which is if your values led and if your principles led, which I think to be a person of color in this sector, you have to be, um, if, you're going to, if you're going to overcome those challenges that we've alluded to and, and, and explicitly detailed as well, you have to be yourself. I, 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 I've been in other, um, you know, during, um, you know, during studies and so on, I, I, I ventured, you know, tentative, tentatively into the private sector and did all of these kind of corporate work experience things or taster day things. And I found myself trying to be something that I wasn't just to feel comfortable and I couldn't physically do it, which ultimately led me, led me to pivot into this sector, which is where ultimately I wanted to be. Um, being being yourself in this space, I don't think you last very long in this space. I think people recognize inauthenticity very, very quickly. Um, I think we can spot it very, very easily. And it comes out in a space like the charity sector because we're championing the marginalized. That's what we want to do. And like you said, being marginalized ourselves, being othered ourselves comes with great comes a great strength, comes a great value and lived expertise that our white peers don't have. And I think not leveraging that in some way, not, not living that wholeheartedly, you just, you, you, set, you set yourself up for failure, I think, in this sector. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with, um, you know, with what Rini has said there, which is that, you know, for me, um, there's little value in in pretending or trying to be something that you're not. Um, you know, as you said, as Rini said, first of all, well, not first and foremost, but not least because it will be spotted. You can't be consistent. You you know you you don't present yourself. I think in a way that that you know that that that, um, that manifests or demonstrates integrity. But also internally, you know, if you're not in a situation in which you you know you are being true to yourself. I think that internally that sets all sorts of, um, you know, sets up all sorts of kind of challenges for yourself. Um, we, we, you know, I joined this sector and I'm sure that most of us did, if not all of us, but I joined the sector to make a difference to, you know, in not to be grandiose, but to do my best to kind of change the world as it were. Um, and so part of that, you have to start from, uh, so, so straight away you're starting from a value driven place. Um, and so therefore being yourself and being authentic um, you know, is a continuation and a natural extension, I think, um, you know, of that point. So, you know, and, and then ultimately as well, you do find yourself in a situation in which actually if you can't be yourself, if you can't be authentic, then you're in the wrong, you know, then not so much that you're in the wrong environment, but it's better off, I think, if you feel 
um, having given your very best effort to change that environment. So it's not about settling, but it is definitely about finding an environment and a context in which you can really, you know, um, you know, bring your whole self to the environment that you're in um, to the best of your ability. Uh, so that's that, you know, that's kind of where I've got. That's where I've uh, that's where I've got to. So, so both of you have touched on um, legitimacy and you've talked really clearly about why being authentic is so essential. But two things spring to mind. So tokenism and safety. So bringing your whole self to work when you are in a minoritized group can expose you to risks and issues. Um, and wanting to feel that you have legitimacy to hold the roles that you have, where frankly, because of the systemic and structural kind of um, inequalities that we experience might mean that you don't have that masters really that you mentioned or whatever else it might be, or indeed you might have it and still feel that you can't quite progress in the way that you ought to be able to. So I guess the question is, how do you move away from being the tokenistic part of a leadership team but equally how do you ensure that when you are perhaps in the minority of a leadership team based on your labels or whatever else it might be that you are able to stay safe and still kind of not lose yourself so Paul do you want to just jump in on that and then I'll hand over to Rini well, no, not really, because it's a difficult question to answer. Um, but it's a really, really fair one. And, and you know, so from my perspective, so, you know, I really feel like the old man of the panel and I really don't want to be in that situation. But what I would say is that I, you know, on, on each of the management teams that I've, you know, been a peer on or been part of or what have you, um, I have tried to bring my entire safe, you know, self to work because, I'm kind of thinking, well, this is what the organization requires and needs. I mean, although I've talked about imposter syndrome, I guess there is something about having a self, innate self-confident that says, says that I'm here for a reason. You know, mm -hmm. I have a set of attributes, a set of skills, um, uh, you know, a set of assets that are of value to this organization. And I'm going to do my level best to bring them uh, to bear for the benefit of the organization. And if I'm able to do so in a meaningful way, I will A, help move the organization on in terms of achieving its mission, but also provide great, you know, be a role model, it be an articulation and embodiment of personification, of, of positivity, therefore hopefully creating space for others to come through. So I'm not necessarily saying, um, you know, that it's easy because it's not. It, it, sometimes it's nigh on impossible, but I think it's incredibly important to hold firm to that, you know, as an aspiration. I definitely do. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, go off into anecdote and what have you. But, you know, um, I've been um, within my professional, you know, in professional context, I'm, I know with certainty that, you know, that um, I've not been able to uh, or people have made decisions that said, oh, you're not going to engage with a particular donor. You're not going to do that, you know, or what have you. How the hell does that one even work? Who loses in that situation? You know, the point is, if I feel that I can bring value to a donor relationship, um, then I should be in that situation, which I'm able to do so. So I'm going to create, or I'm going to do my level best to ensure that when I have that interaction, when I do get that opportunity, I will deliver it to the best of my, you know, to the best of my ability, and hopefully, in so doing, 
prove people wrong um and in so doing as well build that you know that space uh uh, uh and that uh, authentication um of, of of who i am and you Rini? i think there's something like really important that i want to make really clear to, to those watching which is protecting yourself isn't inauthentic it mm. doesn't make you inauthentic I completely understand the internal ter turmoil that comes with not being able to bring your whole self to work. But if bringing your whole self to work puts you at risk, and, and so you end up code switching, or you end up, you know, hiding certain elements of your life, it's not okay, but that doesn't lie on you. That does not lie on you as a person, that lies on your environment. That responsibility lies on your, on your employer. It, it lies on the organization, it's a failing on their part. So it absolutely doesn't make you inauthentic. I am the only person of color on my floor at Hospice UK. It's the first thing I notice when I walk through the door. There's a handful of us. I, you know, I, it's impossible not to feel that, you know, day in, day out when you're in a working environment, which is why it was so important to me. My relationships outside of work aren't like that you know, my extra, you know, my extracurricular activities, which is why Charity So White is so, you know, so close to my heart, the BAME networks in which I'm involved with, incredibly important to have connections across the sector mm. in which you can, you can share those experiences and you can learn from each other and those opportunities which are otherwise gate-kept from you are opened up. The opportunities that I've had as a result of my peers of colour in the sector have blown me away. I'm again, I'm early on in my career, but the fact that I'm here, the fact that I'm talking with you both, that is a testament to the people of colour in this sector. Mm -hmm. um, and I know all of us, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I can say with about 99.9% .9 conviction, all of us at some point have had to, you know, use our Caucasian voice, or we've had to speak a certain way, or we've had to do, you know, we've all had to do those things, and, and you feel this this real tension like I'm not being real like I'm I'm playing into their game or this lies on me but it doesn't it lies on them and it's a failing on the sector it's on the, it's a failing on the sector's part and maybe because I'm um part of charity so white or maybe because I'm a Maldi millennial I have a very low tolerance um for for hiding my distaste and my unhappiness with an unsafe work environment. I will point it out. And maybe, I don't know if that's a shift. I stand on the shoulders of people who've been in the sector for a very long time, who've had to put up with things that, that frankly are illegal, that they continue to have to do today. Mm. But right now, I feel like we're in the middle of a sea change, a really long overdue sea change. And just touching on what you said, Paul, around, you know, have people feeling that you're not a, that you're not the suitable one to meet a certain donor in my in my field in policy there is no way I thought I could be in a policy position mm. if you'd asked me a year ago oh you know it was my dream to be in policy but there was I really thought it was beyond it was mm. beyond me because there are so few of us it's considered this really cerebral political mm. position and 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 it is but I have you know I have those skills I absolutely have those skills, but I knew I wasn't going to waltz into a job like this. I yeah. knew I'd have to work twice as hard. Um, and that's a really sad reality. But again, that doesn't reflect badly on me. It reflects badly on the sector. Do you know what? I mean, I just, um, 
I'm just in awe of what you're saying, really. And I, and I, and I you know, and as you said it, I was kind of, kind of reflecting. I couldn't agree with you more, um, but it's only through people such as yourself disrupting, challenging, highlighting that it's unacceptable, calling it out that we create that kind of, you know, that behavioural, that sexual change um, that is so overdue. Um, and and so that, you know, so so for me, it goes back to that whole thing about why it's so important that you, you know, that we all maintain that distaste, that we all kind of develop, if we don't already have it, that appetite uh, to call it out when, you know, when we experience it or when we see others experience it, because that is the only way to drive change. But the other thing that I'm struck by what you said, though, is, um, and this becomes a personal reflection, it can be draining, right? It tests your resilience. It, you know, it can be exposed, let alone kind of whether you feel safe or not. It can be just exhausting. Um, but that is where I think the importance of, um, you know, uh, networking groups and affinity groups and, and connecting with, you know, having a strong support network, basically, mm -hmm. to enable you to know that you're not alone or you're not, not, you know, you're not necessarily, you may be isolated in that particular environment, but more broadly, there are others who are, you know, shoulder to shoulder with you and in the trenches. Yeah. And there is something about that. It's the visibility of issues and actually giving them name and space in which we can talk about them in safe brave spaces has meant that you know there is of course a through line we are here on the backs of other people who have also been agitating for change but you know each new chapter agitates for even more change and as it should be and we will keep striving and then we will start to think through intersectional lenses and so on and so forth and and you know, we'll take it about individual responsibility, but recognizing we're part of systemic and structural issues that mean that, you know, even if individuals change, we've got to change that too. And the list does go on. So I think you've both touched upon it in terms of, you know, it is a burden. It's not necessarily one that we have to shoulder alone. It's actually something that organizations and the people who are kind of perpetuating these issues need to see it as their burden rather than ours. But you know, how do we kind of keep the door open, as it were? How do we ensure that more people, you know, don't experience what we've all probably experienced and touched upon today of not thinking we were the people that were going to get the leadership position? So what are your kind of thoughts on how we ensure we keep this door open and make sure that people watching and other people in our sector realise that they too are leaders and should be striving for those positions if that's what they want? So, Rini, I'm going to turn to you if that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's quite a tough question. To... <laughs> I think I gave me a warning. You did, you did, you did, you did. You did. Can I, I step that, in? I mean, yeah, like, go ahead, Paul. Well, I mean, the only reason why I wanted to step in, apart from giving you another few, few seconds to kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> to process really, was just simply to say that, um, well, here's another question, I guess, as well. I'm really conscious as you pose what you pose, Safina, whether, so I was reflecting a lot over the weekend, uh, you know, about some of the territory and the ground that you wanted to cover. I, I, I think that we need to be kind of mindful of the fact that leadership yes is positional as well but there are many many different forms of leadership um and i would want to say really really briefly um because i don't want to kind of you know take that time from really's perspective is that uh thought leadership within the brc has come from uh just a, a, an incredible group of people who you know notionally are, aren't in, in terms of positionally don't have seniority 
but have driven an, an incredibly important um, uh, uh, internal debate and, and driven it with clarity, with persistence, with grace, um, uh, but but power, um, and the, you know that belies necessarily where they are in terms of um, you know the formal structure of the organisation. So so leadership isn't necessarily you know, and that in many ways is a form of leadership that I aspire to. Uh, so I just want to kind of throw that into the mix. Sorry, yeah, really. Yeah. No, 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 that's really valuable. Um, I think for me, that it points to another, sorry to bring up another tension, but it points to the tension that in my day job, I'm the most junior person in my team. Wow. I'm one of the most, I'm one of the most junior in my organization. Wow. I'm part of charity works. I'm part of a graduate scheme. Yes. Um, I've, you know, I'm staying on at the organization happily. Um, but I'm, you know, there's a real tension there when it comes to kind of um, them being a leader on a trustee board because then I'm second guessing constantly like uh, do I know do I actually know what I'm talking about do mm. I actually have the expertise here when it comes to making sure that that ladder doesn't get pulled up and that people you know pe people of color who are younger than us or who want to transition to the charity sector get those roles and progress if they want to I think it's just that I I mean I can speak for myself as a South Asian woman there is a real competitiveness in our culture especially amongst the diaspora that you know there is a limited number of seats at this table you have to conform you have to assimilate in order to get one of those seats at the table and once you've got it you pull that ladder up because wow. there's no more space for anyone else and that is such a crock because that table is a rickety one and that table needs to be um, thrown thrown in the bin and we have to create our own. For me, being part of these peer networks is so important because we, like I said before, all of the opportunities I've had in, in recent months have been because of people my age, people who look like me and who, who want to share. And, and it's overthrowing that mentality that there's a limited number, that there's, no, there's only so much room at the top or there's only so much room um, for people to be decision makers or thought leaders. It's just not. It's just not the case, and it's overthrowing a, a real mentality that's been ingrained in us throughout generations. I think. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a difficult one, isn't it? And I'm conscious of time, so we'll start to kind of wrap up. But I think there's a lot of what we're told by our own communities or mm. you know networks alongside. All that we're told by the sector which frankly doesn't really look like the three of us in a kind of mainstream way and so you've got all of these kind of conflicting narratives about what is possible what isn't possible you've got this sense that leadership i absolutely believe that just to operate in this sector whatever level you're at as someone with labels or who is minoritized or disadvantaged in whatever way you are leading because it's not necessarily always the most embracing, warm environment that you're entering into. Some, sometimes it will be, but it's not the standard. And we're finding that so clearly from the work that Charity So White are doing, but also that the Institute of Fundraising is doing through its Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And there's, you know, Akivo has just released its Home Truths report about racism in the sector. So, you know, I don't want to kind of suggest that this is all kind of plain sailing. Once you're in, you're in with your people, you will be safe. I think how we keep this kind of 
door open and not pull the ladder up, I'm mixing my metaphors, is by having peer networks, by having conversations like this. You know, I formally joined the sector in 2009 and these types of conversations were impossible. They were never going to happen. These last you know, few months even, I've seen a greater kind of conversation happen on this subject than I did even two years ago. So there is progress being made, but it does rely on people putting their head above the parapet and, and saying it for those that are perhaps not yet in the titled leadership roles that empower them to say it for themselves. But we need to be making sure we're having conversations with those people. We're not stealing their narrative. We're working with them to design what it is that we say within our own group, but also far beyond. Do you, do you guys have any kind of final thoughts? Um, and then we'll kind of bring it to a wrap. So um, uh, I, so I would say that um, if I, it's, it's not for me to pull together the kind of threads of this conversation, but, you know that 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 falls to you, Safina. But I, I think that there was a you know huge degree of consistency and consensus, you know, across the three the three of us around um, you know a few key points, you know, but stand out for me were around you know the need to be authentic and 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 to be true to yourself. Sorry to be you know cliched or what have you. Um, but the thing that really kind of struck me, uh, which builds on the point that you, you know, that you just made as well, was, um, you know, was really making the point that um, ultimately we bring what we bring, you know, and about, and we talked about the importance of bringing our whole self to work and what have you, or in any environment that we're in. But ultimately, the responsibility for change um, and create an environment in which people can thrive lies with you know the organisations and the environments that we find ourselves in. But we have to be, I think, consistent in continually, you know, calling out inappropriate behavior, you know, uh, inadvertent or advertent senses of creations of, uh, you know, the sense of othering among others or what have you. That's what we have to do. And that talks to, you know, the importance of the kind of, you know, of, of peer networks to give people the personal relation, you know, resilience mm -hmm. to continue to do that. But ultimately for me, when I think about myself as a, as, as a leader, and the responsibility and accountability that comes with that, it's about making sure that I'm creating that culture in which people can speak up with confidence, that people can thrive, that people can, you know, bring their all of the assets and capability to drive the organisation forward. That's not just a, a value kind of uh, driven um, uh, kind of uh, priority or imperative. It's also because, um, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't want to say it, but I will say it. Um, you know, one of the kind of things that I'm most and I think back about my time in the sector, one of the things I'm really, really pleased about was being part of uh, one of, you know, the group that created the, you know, the Black Fundraisers Network, which was the first kind of gathering or creation or collective of Black, simply because there was a recognition that there were so many talented people that were coming into the sector and mm -hmm. finding a space in which it wasn't welcoming to them. Talented people that would be able to provide you know, to take the sector forward. So I'm really, really pleased that we, you know, that, that you know, how many years on uh, that, that, that we, you know, that there are so many more talented people of colour coming into the sector and hopefully staying longer than they would ordinarily have done so. And really, any kind of thoughts? Um, just to add to what Paul has so eloquently wrapped up is that mobilise your allies. Yeah. Mobilise them this burden does not just fall on you. Yes. Um, you. We are experts by experience and we have been made experts 
not wanting to be. None of us want to be experts in racism. None of us want to be experts in oppression, but we've had to be. We've had to learn that. Um, mobilize your allies and get them to do that heavy lifting for you. It's something that I've done even this early on. I've asked my white colleagues, look, I need you to do this for me. I need you to send this email because this is unacceptable. And they will. Um, if they're if they're an authentic ally, they absolutely will. And don't shy away from doing that. Don't always feel that it's your responsibility to continuously mm. endanger yourself. The other thing I'd say is that I'm so hopeful for this sector. I'm, you know, being in the spaces in which I'm in, um, with you know people who are quite early on in their careers and who are who are occupying leadership positions, titled or otherwise. Um, I'm incredibly hopeful that this sea change will happen it's just it, it's not going to be an easy experience and there are people in power who are who are unwilling to relinquish it and it takes it takes a consistent cohesive effort to make that happen but i i i don't think this is a a call to um you know say that this sector is is, is useless or this sector is um is harmful it there are so many talented people of colour in this sector who deserve to be here and should stay on because the work that they're doing is so impressive, so valuable. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm going to summarise in like 10 seconds and hand back over. Um, so I think four key points. We're all bosses and everyone watching this is a boss too. Um, clearly, we need to find our people, find our allies. We do need to apply scrutiny. We need to think about what's working, what isn't, what can we do to help change that? And just know that you aren't alone. There are lots of us out there looking out for you too. Um, so I'm going to end it at that point. Thank you so much. And I'm going to wave goodbye. Fundraising Everywhere podcast is kindly sponsored by our friends at Just Given. Now, one of the things that we love most about Just Given is that they believe that everyone deserves to be able to use the very best fundraising tech to raise more money. And that includes all charities, small and big, and anyone in the world that wants to make a difference for a cause they care about. And although they've been around for years, they're still as passionate as ever about creating cool new tech and are always releasing new features. Plus, the team's lush to work with and they really care about charities.